You know, most of us didn't know much about Islam, I think, until September 11th, 2001, when the planes crashed into the Twin Towers and into the Pentagon. I don't think we knew much about Islam, at least I didn't, but that kind of came into focus as radical Islamists were behind these attacks. The Sunday night after the attacks, in our church in Canada, where I was pastoring, we had a sharing time, and obviously there were persons who shared about how the terrorist attacks were impacting them and how they were praying for New York City and those that had lost loved ones and so forth. And one person stood up that night, a missionary of ours, and he had been raised in a Muslim country in Africa. And in the midst of all the other prayer requests and sharing, Mick stood up and he said this in our sharing time. He said, Islam and Christianity are as different as Muhammad riding into Mecca on a horse is different than the Lord Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Think about that. Muhammad on the war horse, Jesus on the meek and mild, full of a donkey, Palm Sunday. Mick was right, you know. We're going to be in Luke 4, 14 to 22. And what good is a preacher without his Bible? Could you hand me my Bible? I'm no good without a Bible. I, thank you. I have nothing to say that you should listen to except I tell you what the Bible says. Amen? <laughs> I say that my opinion and five bucks will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks so you know how much my opinion is worth. But my convictions based on God's word are invaluable. So hear the word of God, Luke 4, uh, 14 to 22. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught them in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? We will see how this passage ties into Palm Sunday as we go along this morning. It was common in Jesus' day for readers of the scriptures in the synagogues to stand as they read. Jesus followed that decorum in Nazareth synagogue on the occasion of what our passage reports. Jesus stood to read after the attendant had given him the book open to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. It's interesting that the Lord Jesus picked 
the passage in the book of Isaiah that he would read on that occasion. All the attendant did was give him the book of Isaiah, and then Jesus picked the chapter and the verse as it were. And why were all the eyes of the Jews in that synagogue on that day fixated on Christ? He read a portion of scripture from Isaiah 61. He stopped reading and he sat down to signal, I am done reading God's word for today. And every eye in the synagogue was riveted on him. Why? Well, it's obvious if you do a little digging. The Savior had stopped reading in the middle of a verse when he sat down. He didn't read the whole verse. He read the first half of the verse, folded the book, gave it to the attendant, and sat down. And every eye in the synagogue was staring at him because they knew that he hadn't read the whole verse. It would be like someone standing up and saying, I'm going to read John 3.16 this morning. And they stand up and they read, For God so loved the world, shut the book, and sit down. They knew he had left off half of a verse. Was this a big case of embarrassment? Was this forgetfulness? Was this being in an inordinate hurry to sit down? No, it was none of that. It was entirely intentional that our Savior read what he read. It was highly intentional that he didn't read what he didn't read. And then it was highly significant that after he read the half verse, then he said poignantly, controversially, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Specifically, what did Jesus mean had been fulfilled in their hearing when he read half of verse 2 of Isaiah 61? This is what he said was fulfilled in their hearing. Are you ready? He was saying that the first coming of Messiah's Activities that were predicted in the Old Testament have some of those have been fulfilled in your hearing today in the synagogue in Nazareth. What was fulfilled? What first coming activities did Jesus allude to when he said, Today, this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing? He was saying that the first coming messianic activities, such as the Spirit of the Lord being upon the Messiah, Messiah being anointed by God, Messiah preaching the gospel to the poor, the Messiah healing the brokenhearted, the Messiah proclaiming liberty to the captives, the Messiah recovering sight for the blind, the Messiah liberating the oppressed, the Messiah proclaiming the acceptable day of the Lord. All of that, Jesus said to them on that occasion, today, <laughs> this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Sits down. Jesus told the synagogue that day that by coming the first Christmas, you've seen my first comings Happenings happen. Later, in his public ministry, the day that we mark on the calendar today, Palm Sunday, later in his public ministry, on Palm Sunday, days before the cross, to the cheers of the crowd, the Lord Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem with all of those first 
upcoming activities already on his resume. So why didn't the Lord read the second part of Isaiah 61 and verse 2? Why did he leave it unread? What about Isaiah 61, 2b was not yet fulfilled in the hearing of the people in the Nazareth synagogue? Well, these are the words from Isaiah 61, 2b, which the Lord made a special point not to read that day. Listen, and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Just like we know how John 3.16 ends, they knew how Isaiah 61 verse 2 ended, that Jesus didn't vocalize. They knew that he left off, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And so Isaiah 61, 2a that he read talks about the acceptable year of the Lord, and Isaiah 61, 2b mentions the day of vengeance of our God, which he didn't read. And so at his first coming, the Lord Jesus ushered in, according to Isaiah terminology, he ushered in the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the time that we still live in. Prior to the second coming of our Lord, we live in the same time. We live in the acceptable year of the Lord. So if you're here without saving faith in Jesus, whosoever will may come. Whosoever will come to Christ may come and be born again and forgiven and made new from the inside out. And if that's not your situation, no, finer thing to do, to transfer your trust to the finished work of Christ for your salvation today. And so Jesus was saying in that synagogue before Palm Sunday that he, in his first coming season, was announcing and presenting the acceptable year of the Lord. But at his second coming, which is still future to us this morning, it certainly was future to the Nazareth synagogue's gathering in the first century, but it's still future to us in 2022. In the second coming of Christ, that's still future, it will end the seven years of tribulation, and it will begin the thousand years of Christ's kingdom on earth called the millennium. So the second coming event, still future, is the seam between the seven years of tribulation ending and the seam between the thousand-year kingdom of Christ commencing. At his second coming further, those who hated the Jews and those who hated Jesus in the seven years of tribulation, they, at the, after the second coming, they will face Christ's, King Christ's, righteous retribution and holy vengeance. That's why Isaiah 61 verse 2b talks about the day of the vengeance of our God. After the seven years of tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the scene between thousand years of literal kingdom of Christ on earth, and that, that time, future, that time is the time of the day of vengeance of our God. And so at his first coming, to review, Jesus came as the lamb for sinners slain. But at the second coming, Jesus will come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He came the first time as the lamb. He comes, will come the second time as the lion. 
And so what we've got here is one Messiah with two comings. The first coming was the first Christmas. That's happened. That's the season of the acceptable year of the Lord being kicked off. Whosoever will may come to Christ and be saved by faith. The second coming is yet future. It'll be the seam between the seven years of tribulation, the seam between that and the thousand-year kingdom. And when Jesus comes the second time as the lion of a tribe of Judah, he will not come Jesus meek and mild like he did in the manger. He will come to rule and to reign planet Earth with an iron scepter, according to Isaiah chapter 11. He will suppress evil. He will foster righteousness. He will create a recreation of the, of the creation that fell into sin, and carnivores will become herbivores, and lifespan of humans will be elongated to hundreds of years like it was in, before the flood. Oh, when Jesus comes the second time, he comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Yes. One Messiah, two comings. And that's why the Lord Jesus did read, this is language of the acceptable year of the Lord after the first coming, he did read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor, that's what I'm doing right now, and he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the first coming truth. One Messiah, two comings. And it's also why Jesus didn't read, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. You say, okay, Pastor Rob, if the second coming of Christ is the, ends the seven years of tribulation, why would anybody mourn? Why would anybody be sad? If the second coming of Christ ends seven years of tribulation and commences a perfect kingdom of Christ on earth for a thousand years, why would anybody need comfort? Let me give you two reasons. There's more. Two reasons that so is that before the thousand-year kingdom is ushered in, we read in Revelation 19, 17 to 21, you can do that on your own time, Christ will defeat his foes before the kingdom is established at the battle of Armageddon. And there'll be plenty of casualties. Plenty. Those families will mourn the death of those that Christ slayed. There were opponents to Christ in his kingdom. The second reason that there's a need for comfort and there's mourning that takes place at the second return of Christ is that Christ will rule his thousand-year kingdom on earth with inflexibility, with perfect justice, and with perfect righteousness, which sometimes will require that he actually, King Jesus actually kills rebels to his kingdom cause in the thousand-year kingdom. How does that work? Well, during the thousand-year kingdom, some survivors, believers from the tribulation will come into the millennium with bodies that can still procreate, and they will have babies. Fertility will be enhanced in the kingdom, and some of these husbands and wives will have babies, lots of babies. And in a thousand years, those babies will have babies, and their babies will have babies, and there'll be plenty of babies born in the kingdom. And guess what? They'll all be born like babies are right now with a sin nature. And even though Jesus will rule visibly and reign visibly from David's literal throne on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, 
and he'll be on the television at night on whatever we'll have then. I'm not going to make any preference about Fox News or CNN. I'm staying away from that. But during the future kingdom, King Jesus will be televised and he'll be known by the whole globe and he'll be ruling and reigning in righteousness and perfection and suppressing evil with force. And yet those babies, some of those babies that'll be born in the millennium with their sin natures will under their breath be hateful toward Jesus. Rebellious. Oh, they might look good on the outside, but on the inside, let me get rid of this King Jesus. So much so that at the end of the thousand-year perfect rule and reign of Christ on earth, there's one final battle. And do you know what it says? That when Satan is released from the pit and goes, who's in to take out King Jesus? It says in that passage in Revelation that those that want to defeat Christ and be done with him are more numerable than the sands of the seashore. That tells me that the sin problem in the Bahamas is not environmental. It's not a matter of education or no education. It's not a matter of poverty or riches. It's not a matter of any of that. It's a matter of the heart. All our hearts, whatever our color of skin, whatever our nation of residence, all of our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know them? Desperately in need of redemption, desperately in need of, of uh, regeneration, desperately in need of salvation and conversion. So why will there be mourning and why will there comfort be needed at the second coming of Jesus? Because Christ will defeat his foes in the battle of Armageddon and there'll be plenty of casualties. And number two, Christ will rule his thousand-year kingdom on earth with inflexible, perfect justice and righteousness. And there'll be some overt opponents to that who don't play their cards close to their vest. And the scriptures say that King Jesus will kill them. Ezekiel 34, verse 16. So let's fast forward. We've been in the synagogue in Nazareth. We've been seeing that Jesus was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. He read a half, one and a half verses. He read Isaiah 61, verse 1, and verse 2, first half. Didn't read the second half of verse 2. Let's fast forward from that to the first Palm Sunday. Scripture tells us that when Jesus came into the city, he wept over the city in Jerusalem because he was realizing that the season of his first coming ministry was coming to an end. And the majority of his nation in his humanity was rejecting him and it made him cry because he knew that the majority rejecting him the first Palm Sunday meant that the acceptable year of the Lord was being rejected by people who needed it most. (laughs) And that meant that there would be a seven-year tribulation coming down the century's future, in which, as you read Revelation chapter 4, verse 19, you will see that the atrocities largely, not always, but largely fell upon the Jewish people and will fall upon the Jewish people. I love Jewish people. I want to have as many as possible in heaven with me. 
I share my faith with my friends who are Jewish. Hope you do. Jesus wept because he realized the season of his first coming was coming to an end with the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the favorable year of the Lord was being thumbed at by the Jewish nation. They didn't want it. They wanted military deliverance from Rome, not spiritual deliverance from sin. And so he wept, and it was tear-worthy. And then in our passage, there's this 22. In 23, it tells us that in Luke 4, sorry, it says that they wept. He wept because they didn't believe him to be their Messiah. In fact, they downgraded him. It's nice to get an upgrade on an airline, right? They downgraded him. They called him son of David at the parade. Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, son of David. That's a messianic title, son of David. But they downgraded him at the end of the account, the prophet. They downgraded him to be Joseph's son. They said, <laughs> the guy that we saw grow up in Nazareth, that's, that's all he is. Just the guy we saw grow up in Nazareth. That blows my mind. He grew up in Nazareth for 30 years and never sinned. <laughs> Talk about a testimony. But they downgraded him. And they said, this curious phrase, physician, heal yourself. Physician, heal yourself. That was a way of saying, do some miracles in Nazareth. Heal some people in Nazareth. Multiply some bag lunches in Nazareth. But Jesus refused saying elsewhere, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And so my missionary friend Mick in 2001 was right. He said, a donkey is not a war horse, and a first coming is not a second coming, and Isaiah 61.2a is not Isaiah 61.2b. So how is it with you? How is it with you? I personally think that we're nearing the end of the first coming season of Scripture's history. I personally think that we're near the, coming to the end of the first coming's season, and what I am looking for at any time imminently is the rapture return of Christ for the church. How is it with you? Have you come to Jesus? Confess that you are a sinner. Confess that you need a Savior. That you transfer your trust to the finished work of Christ alone. Have you ever done that? I'm not asking you if your Grammy was religious or your brother is religious. I'm not asking you if your wife is religious. I'm asking you. Do you know Christ as Lord and Savior? 
you think maybe or I hope so, then you don't yet. This would be a great morning to come to the end of yourself as we come, I think, to the end of the first coming of Christ season and say, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Make that your prayer if you've never done so before. And so for those of us who do know Christ as Lord and Savior, what have you been doing with the truth? Are you content to keep the truth of salvation just to yourself because it might be embarrassing to share your faith? You might get rejected for saving your faith. You might lose your job for saving your faith. You might lose your husband for sharing your faith. What are you who are saved doing with the gospel? What am I doing with the gospel? All around this building every day, in Centerville, Mason's Edition, Palmdale, and any neighborhood I would name where you all live and work, there are lost people walking around on the lips of their own graves who may not live till next Sunday. What are you doing? Are you sharing your faith? Here's a challenge for you. Some of you are probably perhaps saying, I live a righteous life. That's my sharing of my faith. Oh, Jesus Christ lived sinless for 30 years in a backwater town called Nazareth. I've been there. It's, it's a little dot on the map still. In that little hometown of Nazareth, the Lord Almighty, Messiah, lived without sin for 30 years. And when he did a miracle, they picked up stones to stone him, blaspheming him and saying the power he had to do miracles was from Satan. And so do you think, do I think that my life, your life, with all its imperfections and inconsistencies is a good enough witness? Open your mouth. The gospel is easy enough for a child to understand and complex enough for a theologian never to plumb the depths of it in his whole studies. The gospel, as I've taught you, is simply Christ died for sins and arose. Let me tell you something. Holy Week starts today. Palm Sunday, some Christians, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Resurrection Lord's Day, the vast Christendom calls it Easter Sunday. If anybody's going to think about the church, about Jesus, it's probably this week next to Christmas. Share your faith. The angels can't. We've been left with that responsibility and that privilege. Leave the results with the Lord, but give the gospel with love, humility, prayer, transparency. Give the gospel. You say, I shared with, I shared with my next door neighbor, uh, you know, she didn't believe, so I'm not sharing again. How many of us trusted Christ the first time we heard the gospel? I don't think it's everybody here. I think plenty of us didn't trust Christ until we heard the gospel once, twice, three times, maybe more. Don't write anybody off. Please. You know my prayer is that our church will grow by conversion growth. Biological growth, like little baby sky, is wonderful. 
transfer growth from other churches is good, but the best growth is the new babe in Christ who trusts Christ by the witness of the people of the church. The people, God's people. You go where I never go this week. You're around people I'm never around this week. You have opportunities for the gospel I never will have. Speak up. Ask the Lord for boldness and love. He'll give it to you. And so we now know why the Lord abruptly stopped in the middle of an Old Testament reading. And we also know why he wept over the city of Jerusalem. When was the last time we wept over the lostness of Nassau? When was the last time? Oh, Heavenly Father, we recognize the crown jewel that we have in our hearts that we have been able to get in on the acceptable year of the Lord in your salvation. We pray that we would not hoard that gem to ourselves, but in this holy week we would share the gospel, which is your power unto, unto God for all who believe. Help us, Lord, to have persons come next Sunday Resurrection Lord's Day, who trusted Christ to be their Savior sometime in Holy Week through our witness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.